Simple Beep, episode 15, The Making of Iconic with Jonathan Zufi. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And for the first time on our show this week, we have another person joining us. We have Jonathan Zufi, the author of Iconic, a photographic tribute to Apple innovation. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks for having me. Jonathan, we thought that you were a great guest to have on since uh, we are so focused on Apple history and you've embarked on a huge Apple history project of your own. Um, But before we get into Iconic and all of these things, uh, we figured that it would be good for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and then your early days with Apple products and we'll work up towards uh, the present. Sure. You say in your bio on the Iconic site that your first Apple device ever was the Apple IIc. And we were curious, how did you come to buy an Apple IIc and was it your first personal computer? It was my first badged Apple computer. The first Apple computer I had was actually a clone, an Apple II clone. Uh, I'm originally from Melbourne, Australia, and the clone was, was actually called a Wombat. Um, and it was pretty much what you'd expect any of the, you know, if you're familiar with all the different Apple II clones that were around. It, it, you know, look, it had a similar looking Apple II case, but the keyboard was a little bit different. But the first badged Apple product I had was the 2C. Well, I remember hearing even up through the 90s to early 2000s that Apple products in Australia were typically much more expensive even after the exchange rate than they were in the rest of the world and especially in the United States. That's correct. And, and that, was, um, that was correct for a very long time until, you know, I think the, the general cost and economic kind of landscape of the way things move around the planet's changed over time. Things have obviously, uh, consumer electronics have obviously become significantly cheaper. But at the time, I mean, it just took, you know, a lot longer for those products to get over to Australia and then the cost of, you know, I'm sure the, the internal cost of running the business within Australia was such that they were always a lot more expensive. Today, they're pretty much on par if you look at the exchange rate. So if you were to buy, you know, say, an Apple TV in Australia, you would probably pay around about the same price that you would pay for one here in the US. Yeah, I was looking at the prices for the MacBook line and I think it was something like seventeen ninety nine Australian dollars is where it was starting today. And if you do the exchange, it's about a hundred dollars more total cost US than the US price, which, you know, that's maybe a, a five to ten percent uh difference. But I remember it being almost double or triple, some people said in the in the nineties. Right. And and the thing is today that the exchange rate's gone down to um well it's it's not great, it's at about eighty cents. It was at parity not that long ago. So, you know, in that case I think prices are probably a little bit uh, a little bit better. I didn't expect to have the story about the Apple II clone. Did you notice <laughs> any major difference when you went from the clone to the actual Apple branded product? Did you feel like there was better fit and finish. Did you feel like you'd really made it <laughs> by having that computer? Um, absolutely. Uh, so it was a two C, and I had um, I had an old Epson. It was like an LX eighty printer, which I ditched for an ImageWriter two, and of course the Monitor two that came with the two C. So I was, you know, I had a complete Apple. You know, everything on my desk was, was Apple, but 
my first exposure to Apple products was actually not at home. It was at school. It was in the computer science department of my school that I attended, and they had two Apple II Pluses in their computer room, and they had a plotter. I don't think it was an Apple plotter, but it was a plotter, and they had a, an ImageWriter 1 printer. And that was really where I started to get into computers in general and came home and I think I got one for my bar mitzvah. That was the, that was the wombat. And then um, after that, I, I can't remember so, so long ago, I can't remember why I upgraded. I'm guessing that it was just newer and um, I just wanted the, the, the latest and greatest. Well, the 2C was the first one that seemed really portable and slim compared to the other ones, right? Right, but I, you know, of course, I there was no, I had no need for portability. It's it sat on my desk the entire, like the entire duration of its life at home. We've seen through your projects today that you're obviously both very technical and also very creative. So when you were first getting into the Apple II, what sort of things were you able to do with the Apple II that you just wouldn't have been able to do otherwise? Well, I think like most young kids, it started with games. And there were lots of games that I played. Um, the one that really just stands out on its own, only because I can still remember sitting there just for many, many hours on end, was the Wizardry series. And, um, you know, th- these were the days where, you know, there were no network games or, or anything like that. So I used to play Wizardry with friends sitting at the same computer. Um, but I... I also was um, was doing a computer science course at school, and so we were doing a lot of programming. And the first programming language that I had real exposure to was Apple Basic and Apple Logo and 6802 Assembly. Um, so I really just was fascinated by the fact that you could kind of get under the covers and make the computer do what you wanted it to do and I was really juggling between logo and assembly and then that eventually turned into Pascal and that's where I ended up spending more of my time was on the development side just tinkering and and playing around. Did you have any sort of like serious applications with logo because I was just thinking the other day I was writing some Ruby code and I go okay I you know I'm not a programmer but I know the basics of if statements and for loops and this basic programming concepts and thinking, when did I actually learn this? Because I never took a really a computer science course at that point in, in school. And I thought, you know, I think I learned these moving that turtle around in Logo on an Apple II. And it's just sort of stuck with me ever since. So I remember, you know, we basically made you know, spirograph type patterns with uh, the turtle in Logo. But I, I know that it was a full-fledged language besides that, right? Yes, I I can say definitely that I never got into anything other than drawing. So, you know, there were never any deep mathematical equations that I was solving or, you know, any file handling or or anything like that, I think. But the the one thing that I remember doing in Logo was the Olympic logo with the bear. So when it was in Russia, remember when the the bear was the the, the logo of the Russian Olympics? So I had a a bear face and and the... the rings of um, the Olympic flag. That was probably the most complicated thing. But Logo, I, I really think that Logo still today stands as, the, uh, in my opinion, the best programming language to get kids started.
started. And I know there are things out there like Scratch and, and things like that. But I actually have started to teach my kids logo. And I've just felt that it's always been the best way to really describe the way a computer works. You know, a computer doesn't make mistakes. A computer does exactly what you tell it to do. And if you tell it to draw something and it doesn't come out the way you expect, it's a great way for kids to understand that there's a direct relationship between what you put in and what you get out. Well, and there are so, so many other uh, programs for kids that are like that, where you get a small computer like a Raspberry Pi and hook it up to a little robot that'll you know, in, in real space, actually, you know, take your instructions and move about. But the the digital nature of the little logo turtle that you can just say, oh, that was completely wrong, start over. Um, it's just so much more accessible because there's, you can't do anything wrong. You can't break the turtle. Well, I mean, yeah, it can, it can disappear off the screen. <laughs> and I remember having to learn how to get it back. Yeah. So let's move on to the Mac. And we're curious... How and when did you make your first move to the Mac, and what was the first Mac that you owned? So the first Mac that we owned as a family was a Macintosh Plus. Um, my father ran a small pharmacy in Melbourne, and he was always way ahead of, uh, um, I think, not just other pharmacies in the area, but small businesses. I mean, he was the first one to have a computer, in the area, I was the first one to have a fax machine and a photocopier. And so he was always keeping up with the latest trends um, around personal computing. And he decided that he was going to run all of his personal and business accounting on, uh, on, a, on a, uh, uh, a Mac. So the first machine that we got was a Macintosh Plus. And of course, I ended up using it a lot and playing games. And we bought a modem and I got into board boards and, and that whole that whole um, world. Um, so, so that was that was the first one, and then we had an ImageWriter two, and we had an external twenty meg hard drive. Although it wasn't an Apple branded version, I don't remember the brand. It was a third party brand, but I know that it wasn't Apple. Um, and then from there, the next machine we had was it was one of the clunkers. It was the two VI. Um, and then I actually pivoted away from Apple um, when I kind of left high school and I got into um, programming um, on Windows and started with you know, C and C++ and a lot of Visual Basic. And so um, actually my kind of deep programming background even today is on the .NET platform. So I still do quite a lot of work on Windows and on the, on the, on the Windows platform. But um, the Macintosh Plus and, and the 2BI were really the last Macs that I had at home for a very, very long time. That's interesting. So when you had these early experiences with the Mac, how did it compare to what you came to expect from the Apple II? Well, everything was just easier. You know, everything worked. Um, there was, wasn't a lot of setup. There wasn't a lot of configuration. Stuff didn't crash as often. And it, was, it just felt better. It just felt a lot more fun using stuff on a Mac, certainly even Windows. Uh, even um, word processing um, was just was just so much so much easier. And everyone, of course, in the family got into word processing, and they never wanted to do it on on my uh, on my um, Windows machine. I also had a lot of early Toshiba laptops I needed to do work on, and everyone always wanted to use the Mac. Yeah, it's like today. Even 
you know, we run a lot of things through Google Docs. And it's simple. You can sit down to any machine on the planet and or even on your phone and get access to Google Docs. But of course, if you have your own setup, what feels familiar surrounding it, you're still going to be more comfortable. Absolutely. So I'd like to jump in. Um, you've answered a lot of these questions and talking about software, the wizardry games, uh, being able to program in logo and the ease of certain word processors. And your projects, Shrine of Apple and Iconic, are clearly showcasing the physical and the tangible, like the actual hardware and the packaging around it. Um, and, you know, from a design focus, uh, is there any software either from that era or today that uh, stands out to you for a, a certain design, either like on its own or as a representative of that time? That's a great question. Um, my mind is racing just trying to think about um, all the different, I guess, software experiences I've had on, on the Mac. Maybe some of those early experiences where you really had that feeling of it just works or it can do something that the Apple II never could have because of graphics or some other capability. The the introduction of the mouse, of course. Yeah, and, and of course, I remember, you know, the first time I, I used Mac Paint and, you know, just clicking on, you know, going into zoom mode and making pixels appear and disappear and then getting the eraser and running it around in a circle and watch the pixels go away was pretty amazing. I can remember spending a lot of time doing that. Remember, you could change the, the background of the, you go into the um, control panel and you could change the background with those little kind of swatches of all the different, you could, I think it was like a 16 by 16 array of pixels and you could make that your background. I spent hours and hours on that. So I, I mean, I guess probably just the, op, just even, even the control panel, right? I mean, just tweaking, just the, the ability to customize your workspace without even getting into applications was, I think, pretty new on, on the Mac. I, I certainly remember spending a lot of time just playing around with configuring how my Mac looked and felt with the different beeps. And then once you got on the modem and you could find other sounds, you could pull them down and you could use those, use those as your beeps and then you know, music and, and audio and things like that in general. So um, I, would, I would say, and thanks for kind of coaching me to that, to actually getting to that point, I, th- I think just the ability to, to customize my, my workspace um, was, was definitely pretty cool but uh, you know even even today i mean if you look at um a lot of the development environments like uh, i'm actually not an xcode developer we i do a lot of work in my day job around building um applications on ios i work with a bunch of ios developers but even just xcode the development environment i mean is quite an amazing piece of software engineering final cut pro obviously and the infrastructure that it has, and the ability to add all these amazing video and audio effects plugins. Um, so, you know, I think there's a reason that Hollywood, you know, makes movies and cuts them even today on 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 uh, Apple software. I think it speaks a lot to the the platform and the ability to just create these beautiful applications that are obviously very stable, um, but still scale very well and are extremely powerful. I love that point about just sort of playing around in the control panel, or then. The time that I came to the Mac was in System 7, 7.1 time, and so control panels, plural. But I remember losing hours in the map control panel, which it's funny because I think, you know, you look at something like Google Maps today, and the level of detail is just billions of times more. You know, there was one picture of a map, and you could 
plug in coordinates and you could find the middle of nowhere and those sorts of fun things. You could go through the cities alphabetically. And I would spend hours on that because it was the best that we had at the time. And now, of course, I can get lost in Google Maps and realize that half an hour has passed and I've just been you know, poking around some city that I've never been to. Or a couple of years ago, that GeoGuessr game came out where they would drop you into a random street view and you had to figure out where in the world you were. So these same sort of things that get us excited, whatever level the technology is at, it can always still grab us. I want to ask a, another software question, maybe an easier software question. Um, clearly, looking through your work in your book, you can see uh, design trends in hardware, like uh, I think the Snow White design language of the 90s to the translucent plastics and now the glass and aluminum of today. And there are similar trends in the software world, at least from the design of software, like uh, the classic skeuomorphism versus flat or when we went from the kind of uh, relatively flat monochromatic System 6 to more colorful System 7 and the progression in the classic Mac OS. Uh, is there, how do you feel about the, these trends? Like, is there a certain era that uh, sticks out most to you, rather, whether for nostalgic reasons or from like purely aesthetic appreciation? So I think that's one of the interesting things about my, my uh, project, um, as I said earlier, I, the, the 2VI was the last Mac that we had at home, and that was pretty much it for a long time until, um, like, the iPod, right? And I think the first Mac that I bought after that for myself was um, probably one of the unibody Mac pros because I really spent majority of my career building solutions on Windows. So I actually didn't own a Mac for a very, very long time. I mean, what, 25, 30 years. The, the halo effect got you, though, with the iPod. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I obviously spent a lot of time around Macs, had them at various places that I worked and friends had them, but I didn't I wasn't a Mac guy. I was always a Windows guy. That was just not necessarily because I preferred it. It was just that was the skill set that I have and still have to some extent today and was what I was comfortable with. And I would, you know, used to build database management applications in Visual Basic for companies and that's how I kind of made my bread and butter. I think Apple has clearly always led the way in UI and UX. Um, Applications, sure, you know, people have built apps on Mac that haven't been very easy to use and don't look that great. But the tools and widgets, I think, have always um, provided a much better looking framework. If you, you know, compare, you know, OS 9 and 10 and et cetera, and you kind of map those against, I guess, Windows 3.195, NT, 2000, et cetera, I think that the user experience, the, the look and feel of Mac apps always looked and felt better than those on Windows. Um, the, some of the apps today that you see on Mac are just, you know, still absolutely gorgeous. You know, Panic is a great example. Um, I use their, their FTP client um, called, and it's completely escaped me. Uh, Transmit? Transmit, yeah. I mean, what a, you know, beautiful application it does exactly what you want it to do it looks great it's very easy to use it's very intuitive and it just looks and feels fantastic i still 
would struggle to find an FTP client on Windows that looks anywhere as good as it does on the Mac. Um, thing, tools like iMovie, right? I mean, iMovie is, you know, it's a movie editing application and there are lots of movie, movie editing applications on Windows, but none of them, they're all just so hard to use and so complicated. Well, I think one of the reasons that it went this way is just that Apple established such consistent design language that developers would think, well, I really should try to work with that. They've given me the framework to work within, where maybe on the Windows side, the windows were just so Spartan that it was, well, it's just a rectangle. I can make whatever rectangle I want and it'll be equivalent. And you would get this sort of mishmash of, of software that decided that it was going to go off all in its own direction. And even on the Mac, even as we went into the skeuomorphic era, so I'm recording this podcast right now using Piezo, which is delightfully skeuomorphic. It looks like an old hi-fi radio, basically. But even then, in the skeuomorphic era, Apple was putting such attention into those material designs, making things look like real-world objects, that if anybody else was going to come along and mimic the same sort of thing, they had to put in the same level of attention to detail or it was going to look like child's sketch in comparison to Apple's beautiful material designs. Right, and, and I, um, I, I, I don't really get the whole skeuomorphic debate. I mean, I, I think an application can look great or it cannot look great, and whether it's skeuomorphic or not, I think is not... I, I've never seen that as part of the user experience. I think there are, there are a lot more elements about an application that make it usable. Um, obviously, Apple you know, had some very specific design focuses that they wanted to move away from when they you know, kind of moved to... 7 and iOS 7 and, and 8 and certainly the latest versions of, of Mac OS X. Um, but, I, I mean, I think even if you go back and look at some of the old Aqua stuff, I mean, I think it looked great. I think it still looks really good today. Um, some apps don't, but some of, them, some of them look really, really good. Yeah, absolutely. The only time that I really got bothered by skeuomorphism was a few times that it actually got in the way of the functionality. Like I think we mentioned just a couple episodes ago, when they went to the first brush metal QuickTime player and the volume control went from a slider to a knob, but the knob only had about maybe uh, 32 pixels high and about eight pixels wide of a grab area. And then you had to move it up, click and drag and move it up and down with the mouse. And it was just impossible to use. It looked like a knob on the side of a device that would be very easy to use if it were a physical object, but it just didn't translate. But those times when it really breaks down the functionality, I think you're right, Jonathan, were few and far between, even in that era when things were very heavily based on those real-world objects. We've mentioned your work, Shrine of Apple, the website, and Iconic, the book. Uh, so let's start asking some questions that are pointed at that work. Uh, so in 2009, uh, it seems you got the idea to photograph every Apple product ever. Uh, like, what was the genesis of this idea or the inspiration? One of the games that I used to play at school was a game called Robot War. Um, I'm not sure if you guys remember that game, but uh, you would. It was, um, it was a very simple uh, programming language for these little robots. You could make them move, and you could tell them to ping their radar, and you could get them to fire the cannon. And you could see how hot the cannon was, and then if things were too hot, you would need to wait till it cooled down, and then you could fire up another shot. So you would pre-program your robots in a 
in an arena, which is just a square area, and then you would put them in the arena and they would you'd say go and they would go off and fight each other and whoever was left was, um, was, was the winner. I used to absolutely love playing that game and it was one of the early applications on the Apple II that also gave me some of my development chops early on. So in 2009, for, for no particular reason, the game just kind of popped back into my head and I went off to look. I started to do some research about it and looked at the Wikipedia page and then um, realized that I could download a uh, Apple II emulator and I could play it, which I did. And it had the same clicks and clacks, you know, the, the really clunky speaker music that you could do in the, in the Apple II days. And, and, and it was cool, but I, I kind of, I just felt like I wanted to play it for real on a real machine. So I thought, oh, I'll go over to eBay and I'll, I'll look for an old Apple II, which I'm sure you know, people are going to be sitting around in the garage and I'll find one. And, and of course, I found someone who would, was selling a copy of Robot War in the original package and, and I ordered that and I ordered an Apple II Plus. But while I was looking around eBay, I, I, I saw all of these um, hundreds and hundreds of photos of this old Apple stuff. And of course, this is two years after the iPhone has come out, and um, I've been in the wireless mobile phone slash messaging business for a long time, since around 99, 2000. So, you know, iPhone and phones were, were something that I was doing a lot of work around and was a big part of my life. And so I was spending a lot of time on Apple's website, and the idea that popped into my head was, you know, when you go to apple.com and you see all of their products, they just look phenomenal. You, they're all, you know, high-definition photos set against this white infinity background, and they, and they just look great. So good that they almost look fake or like a render sometimes. Right, right, exactly. And that's, we should, it'd be interesting to kind of cover that later on because I've done a lot of research about how those photos are actually done. Um, and so I thought, you know, w- wouldn't it be cool if, you could look at all of the old Apple stuff in the same way that you could see the new stuff. And so I went and looked around and I found there were a couple of books out there already. One was called Apple Design. Another one was called um, um, Apple. They're both called Apple Design and one had camel casing and the other one, the other one didn't. But they were, they were kind of... Um, books about the history of Apple's design and sprinkled throughout the books were photos um, that were high definition, but they were somewhat incomplete. um, And so I felt that, you know, if it was going to be done properly, it really should be every single product. And of course it was, it was, it was a bit of a crazy idea. I didn't really know that it was going to go as far as it did, but, but, but that was the original goal. I thought, if I'm going to do it, really want to do it properly. I want to make it this all-encompassing encyclopedia. And I have to say, at that stage, I didn't know about, I mean, I would say 80% of the products that I ended up buying and photographing, I, I didn't even know that they existed. It was only until I started this kind of journey of doing this that I discovered, oh, wow, Apple used to make plotters and Apple used to sell digital cameras. And they had flatbed scanners. And wow, the PowerBooks 
well, it wasn't just the PowerBook. There were actually like 50 different PowerBook models. I remember using the QuickTake when it was one of the best digital cameras available on the market. Well, it, and, and it was one of the only digital cameras available on the market. So, um, so, I, so I thought, well, I'll kind of start. And so I started to buy, you know, I bought another Apple II. I think it was a 2 I think I bought a 2C and then I bought a 2E. And then I, so I had done um, 2009. So in 2007, I sold um, a company that I'd started back in 2002 um, and, you know, had a little bit of money to play with, not a lot, um, but I decided, you know what, this is going to be my next project. And I just went for it and I just started buying stuff on eBay. I mean, we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of boxes arriving at the house. I, I, was, gonna, I was going to ask that, you know, even some of the most avid Apple fans and collectors, like, hello, Stephen Hackett, um, <laughs> usually only have personal access to just a few Apple devices. So we're going to ask, how did you go about tracking down these products? So it sounds like a lot of eBay purchases, and I didn't realize that these were basically all coming to you. What percentage of the things in the book actually are were in your possession, are still in your possession? How does that work? So put the prototypes chapter to the side. We'll talk about that a little bit later. All the other products, I would say, you know, 99.8% of the products in there were mine that I bought. Um, also, by the way, shout out to Stephen Hackett, top, top, top bloke. Um, worked with him a, um, a couple of times. Um, so, yeah, I, so I, I bought all these things and, and I, it was a combination of kind of looking through eBay, seeing things that I hadn't seen before going off to Wikipedia or everymac.com and seeing, oh, okay, this is a model that came out with this particular configuration. I don't have that. So let me go and find, you know, let me find one that's in good condition, preferably in the original box. That was always my preference was to buy everything and anything in the original box, and I was always paying a premium for that. Uh, but the reason was that I wanted to get, I wanted to capture everything about the product, so the packaging, the manuals, the plastic it was in, the foam, uh, all that stuff. And you can see a lot of the results of that in the, in the packaging chapter um, at the end. So all those products I, I bought directly on eBay. Um, I, I, I am going to put together a detailed analysis of the whole project at some point from a financial perspective, talk about what I invested and what the book made and everything like that. But I would say of the products that I purchased, you know, Obviously, you know, several hundred thousand dollars worth of stuff that I was buying, but 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 the goal was always that I was going to sell that back onto eBay, and then use the money to then go and produce and print the book. Um, the only problem was uh, I was so obsessed with getting a lot of this stuff that I paid for it um, and and paid prices that I was never going to get back, even on eBay to the other crazy collectors. Um, so I probably got about. You know, seventy cents back in the dollar for for everything that I spent, but everything that 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 I purchased, I you know I I bought it. It came to the house, and eventually, you know, when my wife started to realize that there was no way to actually get into the house because there were boxes everywhere, I went and got a storage unit, moved everything to the storage unit, and then just started filling up the storage unit. And I've got some photos of the storage unit. I think on my video online where it's just you know piles and piles and boxes of all this stuff. And I really, I was just I was in this zone. I was just buying stuff and I hadn't even started to 
worry about photographing it yet. I just said, oh, I'm just going to get it and collect it all, and then I'll worry about how I'm going to photograph it. Yeah, so have you always been sort of a hobby photographer, or was this another whole piece of the project that had to be learned to make it a reality? It was a whole new thing. Um, so I, um, I had a friend who's a photographer, and I called her up, and she put me on to a guy, put me on to a guy who put me on to a professor of photography at SCAD here in Atlanta. His name is Forrest McMullen. And he came over and I showed him all this Apple stuff. And um, I said, um, I actually, the first machine that I wanted to photograph was obviously a two-seat. And so I had one on the table and I showed it to him and I said, you see this two-seat? I said, I want to photograph this just like this iPhone looks um, on Apple's website. You know, beautiful, high definition, you know, infinity white background. Uh, it, how do I do this? <clears throat> and so he said, well, it's, it's basically you, you want to do you know, product photography. You'll need a product shooting table. You need a good camera. You need the right lights. It's all about the lighting. I said, look, just tell me what to buy and I'll go off and, and I'll buy it. And you come back and you help me assemble it and configure the camera. And that's what we did. So I went off to Amazon and bought you know, $3,000, $4,000 worth of equipment and then the camera, which was a very high-end camera, a Mark II, Canon 5D Mark II which I still do not know how to fully use today. It's an amazing, amazing piece of machinery. Um, got these, you know, um, flash wizard, you know, wireless flash trigger things and Alien B lights and a Manfrotto product table and, you know, this full-blown product shooting setup. And he set the whole thing up, configured the lights, positioned them properly, put the Apple IIc on the table, picked up the camera, you know, changed a few settings and, and literally took one photo and then turned it around and showed me what was on the viewfinder. And it was exactly what I wanted. Like the lighting was perfect, the shadows and everything. And I said, you know, I, like that's, thank you, that's it. And so, you know, we spent a little bit more time. He showed me how to use a light meter and how to configure the lights because, you know, the 2C is, is a, basically a plastic box. But when you put a, you know, a G4 cube on the table, things start to get a little bit more complicated when you put a first-generation iPod on, which has a mirror back, things start to get a lot more complicated. So you need, you know, black cardboard to hold over the different parts of the product. So the light, you know, you get that kind of diagonal shadow effect. Um, so, you know, started to show me a few tips and tricks. And then he disappeared for a couple of years while I went off and photographed thousands, tens of thousands of photos of all of this stuff. And then I actually ended up calling him back into the project when I realized I had so many photos, I was not able to determine which ones were going to be the right ones. So he ended up being the editor for the, for the book as well, helping me filter out which products and which photos I was going to include in the book. So have you taken your new photography knowledge into the rest of the world now as more of a hobby? No. Um, so I, I still use the camera today for like family photos. Um, I, I think I'm good at framing a, sh a good shot like of people um, and everyone says and the family says I take really good photos but I think a lot of that is due to the camera but the camera is pretty much always on automatic mode so I still have not learnt you know the true art of photography of understanding where the light's coming from you know how I should configure the camera because I didn't really do much of that stuff it was all set up for me and I just had a few different parameters, uh, uh, parameters that I changed for the shots that I needed to take so well, I learned how to use the camera. It was for a very defined, fixed reason. And while I became very good at that, 
I didn't really, you know, so I wouldn't say that I've become this, you know, fantastic all-round photographer, but I can still take a pretty good product shot. So obviously the camera itself is one of the things that came out of the project that has remained in your personal life. Are there any of the actual Apple devices that after their purpose for the Shrine of Apple and Iconic projects was done, you just couldn't part with or are still with you in your house or in your personal life today? Of all the stuff that I bought, I sold, except for I have an Apple Lisa. I have an Apple II Plus. I have the full set of red uh, iPods, so every generation that they did in red. I have all of those in the original box. And I have three power books that I just recently found um, shoved under some, some boxes. Um, and that's about, you know, other than all of my normal Apple stuff, so I have a, I have a Mac Pro, I have a brand new Mac Pro that I just bought, my iPhone, my iPod, Apple TV, all that kind of current stuff. Um, but all of the, all the old stuff, including all of the boxes and the manuals and the peripherals and everything, um, I think I might have a couple of joysticks left, but everything else was, was sold. So your attic is not like John Syracuse's attic. No, no, no I just, I, I couldn't. But those sound like very good selections. I mean, the Lisa, I, I couldn't get rid of that if I ever came to have one in my possession. That would just be too much. Yeah, it's, it's such a, it's still amazing just, just to look at it. I, I think it's amazing to look at all of the much older stuff and just, you know, you look at it and you go, this is, you know, this is the company that's, you know, everyone's talking about. It's going to be worth a trillion dollars today. Like this is, this is where they started. And even, and even the Lisa, I think it's actually a really nice looking computer. I mean, you know, everyone talks about the fact that it was a market failure and, and all that, but when, when it's sitting on the desk, I still think it's a good-looking computer. I think it looks really, really cool. I picked up uh, a couple of years ago at a used book sale a hardbound Apple Lisa handbook that was a third-party manual that was published for it. And just flipping through that, it, it looks so primitive compared to the Mac and especially where we've come, but it looks so advanced for, compared to everything else that's going on in that book and the context of the era that, yeah, it's just definitely a special piece of hardware, even if it wasn't the market success. It, it was an important piece of the history. And you mentioned having, for example, still all of the Product Red iPods in their packaging. Uh, is something like that and this project as a whole, would it change your mindset so that if, uh, do you see a, an Apple product coming out in the near distant future that you would buy just to keep in its packaging and kind of preserve as a collectible rather than uh, a product to use? That's a great question. I, you know, when they discontinued the iPod Classic, I, I had literally just saw, I had two of them sealed in the original boxes, which I had duplicates of. Um, and I had just recently sold them. And I thought, oh, damn, I should have really kept those. They've, they've got to be worth something. But I, I think now that, you know, sure, in 50 years, you know, having the latest MacBook, you know, the gold MacBook in a sealed box would, would be great. But that I think that that's more of a philosophical question of, you know, number one, is it going to have any market value? By virtue of the fact that it's sealed, and who is the audience 
that is going to appreciate that. And that's also, you know, even if I could have kept a lot of these old machines, I, I really think that the audience of people that appreciate the nostalgia, well, I think nostalgia in general, but the nostalgia of these old vintage computers, I think is very, very slowly diminishing. Um, there are some exceptions, you know, there are some young kids out there, some you know, very young teenagers who are crazy Apple fans, like vintage Apple fans. They're also have turned into, into collectors, but I, I just, I wonder if that audience will still be as big in 50 years, and if so, will it be worth anything? So if I were to buy something and put it away, you know, what would be the purpose? Would it be to hand down to my grandkids? Would it be to sell as something of value? I, my gut feel tells me no. Uh, so we're, we have some questions about particular items that you've photographed. Before we get into them, uh, you published a story about the, how you acquired a multi-server prototype on your blog. Um, is there, are there any other products that have particularly good stories about uh, how you came to acquire them or maybe the people you had to meet to acquire them that you'd like to share? Especially with those prototypes that you alluded to the fact that, you know, many of those you, you, you got a, a chance to photograph, but they were never really, they were never in your storage unit. So, um, a first, you know, I, and I've mentioned obviously him in the book, but there's a gentleman by the name of Jim Abels, who's a, um, he's a guy who lives in Portland and he has a enormous collection of prototypes and I contacted him. And I said, look, I'm writing this book and, you know, I'd love to include some of your prototypes and, you know, is there any way I could come out to Portland and photograph them? And he said, sure, come on over. So I, um, I called Forrest, who's the, my, my photography guy from SCAD, and I said, look, I'm going to Portland to shoot all of these photos, to, to shoot all these prototypes. I need a guy who can help me replicate my setup. Can you help me? And so Forrest helped me track down a photography studio and called them up and said, um, you know, here are the types of products that, that we're shooting. Can you help us? So they set up a, you know, a similar setup with, a, with all the lights and the table. And, they, and Forrest also found a photographer, a local photographer, um, and his name escapes me. I, I would tell you, I just can't remember his name. I remember it starts with a G. And I met him and he helped me take all the photos. So he set up all the lighting and configured everything. And, um, but I actually took all the photos. So, uh, I landed in Portland and I went and rented a car and drove out to Jim's place and knocked on his door and said, hello. And I thanked him again. I said, look, thanks very much. I said, look, I've, you know, I've got this studio. It's about 13, 14 miles from where you live. Um, he said, no problem. And so he took me into his kind of room there where he had them all set up. And he said, okay, well, let me help you start to pack them into the car. So, you know, we started to put all of this stuff in the car. Now, I, if you've seen a lot of these prototypes and if you're familiar with Jim, he's, he's got a lot of photos of his stuff on Flick. I mean, he's got a pretty amazing collection of stuff that's very, very rare. And when we finished packing up the car, he turned to me and goes, okay, I'll see you later. <laughs> and, and, and I said, well, I said, well, hang on, aren't you, aren't you coming with me? He goes, oh, no, no, I've got stuff to do today. I'll just see you later. He's put like $100,000 of Apple stuff in your car, right? Yeah, and he just said, I'll see you later. And you know, that, that just goes to show what kind of a guy he is. 
but you know, obviously the, the, the weight of that kind of came down on me and I, I started to get really, really nervous that, oh, Jesus, I've got to drive slowly. I drive on the right side of the road. I got to make sure I get there. I got to, so I, you know, that, that was, that was pretty amazing. And, you know, of course I got to the, I got to the studio and I unloaded everything and photographed the hell out of it. And then, um, put it all back in the car and drove back and got everything done in a day. And that was just, you know, an amazing, amazing experience. And then I also, I'd stopped off at a, um, at a Best Buy and picked up uh, one terabyte external drive and copied all the photos I took onto the drive. And I gave them to Jim and I said, look, you know, if you could just wait until I publish my book, but you know, here are all the photos for your own record. So you've got a, you know, a record of all this stuff in beautiful high definition, which I think you appreciated. So that was pretty amazing. That's such a great story. I mean, I'm actually right now, as we record this, in the middle of a crosstown move, which is pretty easy. Um, I don't have very far to go, but just like a day ago, I packed up my Apple Extended Keyboard 2 into the original box, and you were loading things into the car. It's like, well, this has to go on the top. It can't go on the bottom. You can't stack stuff on top of it. So just to have, you know, that's just one keyboard that went yeah, at retail and to have all that stuff in a rental car is just, oh, that's mind-blowing. There's another cool story um, on page 266. There's a photo of a, a unifile Twiggy drive, which was, um, so remember the old Twiggy drives that Apple had? So they had, um, they would go, they went in the Apple, the first Apple Lisa, and they went in the very rare Macintosh prototype which never went in production which had a twiggy drive but they had two external drives they had a duo and a uni so a duo file which actually there is one um in the possession of a collector in italy uh but i've not photographed um but there was this single one called a unifile and it was on ebay and it ended up selling for about five grand and there's a gentleman who I've done a lot of work with. His name's John Woodall. John Woodall runs a company called Vintage Micros. And John actually used to be with Sun Remarketing. And he was one of the, one of the original kind of Lisa resellers. And John has an enormous amount of knowledge about the Lisa. If you've got a Lisa and you, you want it fixed, you want it working, just send it to John. Um, he's done leases for guys at Apple, I think he did one for Steve Jobs. I mean, he people from all around the world send him stuff and he knows how to package stuff up so that it gets there safe. He, you know, knows how to box things and he's and he's he's just an amazingly smart guy, but he's just a really, really nice guy. And so he's very well known in the collector world. And the collector who bought this unifile was also based in Italy. And I managed to find out that it, the, the Unifile was being sold here in the US. So this Apple collector asked John to take receipt of the drive, make sure that he could get it working against the real Lisa, and then send it to him in Italy. And so when I found out about that, I said to John, listen, will you please ask the guy if he'll let me photograph it? And he came back and he said, yeah, no problem. And so I said, okay, well, you know, I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive to see you. He lives in South Carolina and I'm going to pick up the drive. He goes, no, 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 I'll just ship it to you. And I said, you can't ship it to me. I just, it's, it's too much risk. He said, let me, let, me, let, me, let me speak to the guy in Italy. So he called him up. He said, yeah, he's got no issues. So he FedExed me this box. So 
I stayed home from work and, you know, basically sat near the door all day, making sure I didn't miss the FedEx truck. And the FedEx truck arrived and this drive arrived and I pulled it out of the box and it was all wrapped up in plastic and bubble wrap and all this stuff. Took it out, took about 100 photos, packed it back in, drove down to FedEx and sent it back to John. So um, that was a lot of work and effort. Just for one machine, but it's pretty kind of cool, unique box. So that was a lot of fun. And then um, a lot of the other items in the prototype collection belong to Daniel Kotke, who's um, one of the original, uh, one of the early uh, Apple employees. And I got onto Daniel, I can't remember who set that up, but I, um, I got onto him and he told me over the phone one day that he had a whole bunch of prototypes and I was welcome to come and photograph them. So once again, I hopped on a plane and went down to Palo Alto and went to his house and he had all his stuff kind of stashed away in his house and same thing, he let me um, put all the stuff in my car and I took it back to my hotel where I did the same thing. I had a local photographer by the name of Mark Richards who does a lot of photography for the Computer History Museum. He also helped me get all the lighting and the table and the setup and we set it up in my hotel room. I've got some photos which I should put in my blog one day where I, where I uh, uh, replicated this whole photography set up and took a whole bunch of photos and, and Daniel had some really amazing stuff as well. So um, um, if you look at page 250, uh, 4 and 255, one of the original hand wire-wrapped Macintosh boards um, and actually if you look at the back page of the book, um, the, the final spread is one of my favorite photos. It's a close-up of the back of an Apple III motherboard that was completely hand-wire-wrapped. Hand, uh, it's just a complete multicolored rat's nest. Yeah. It's a miracle that it, that it worked. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and Daniel um, ran every one of those wires from every point to, to uh, uh, all across the board. So um, he, that, that was also, once again, very gracious allowing me to photograph all of this stuff and all this really rare stuff that, that he had. Um, so just finding all these prototypes. And then I've got other prototypes in there. One, some belong to a gentleman by the name of Randy Carr who sent me a note. He had seen the website. He said, oh, I love your website. I love what you're doing. You know, I think I might have some stuff that you might be interested in photographing. So got on another plane, went to Sunnyvale, and he took me to his storage unit. He didn't even know what he had. And I started, you know, he, he it was like an episode. I always tell a story. It's like an episode from Storage Wars, right? He opens, he lifts up, he lifts up the the, um, the the door, and it's covered in dust, and it's just junk everywhere. And I start looking through the junk, and there's a whole lot of Apple leases stuck in all these boxes. I thought, okay, this is cool. <clears throat> and then I start finding all this stuff, and I pick up this thing, and I'm looking at it, and I'm go, and I go. Holy shit, this is a prototype Apple Newton. <laughs> so in the prototypes chapter, um, there's a photo. I think this is one of my favorite devices in the whole book, just because we've heard so many stories about the prototypes that became the iPhone and then later the iPad. And... Um, I think what was it there was a run on the debug podcast where they had Neaton Ganatra on and he was on that original team and talked about seeing this very early hardware. And it was it sounds just like this, where it's basically they had the capacitive touch screen and it was just like 
sandwiched between a couple pieces of plastic and there was a bunch of other stuff going on on the side and that was good enough. It didn't have to look like a phone. It just had to have all the bits of a phone attached to one physical device. And this Newton prototype looks like it was designed in exactly the same way. Right, right. And so so I've just found the page, it's page 259. I mean, that's exactly right. So you've got a screen and it's, like you said, it's sandwiched between these two pieces of acrylic and, uh, you know, a really big motherboard. And I I looked at it, I first didn't realize what it was. And then when I realized what it was, and I asked Randy, I said, said, is this a Newton? He goes, oh, yeah, that was the original development machine. And I said, do you have any idea what this is worth? I mean, obviously, you know, to a very small audience but he had absolutely no idea and he had a whole bunch of other stuff that's in the that's in that chapter as well so you know just seeing the look on his face and seeing the look on his wife's face when she started to realize okay this junk might actually be worth something um and you know he was he was great as well he let me put it in my car drove it all the way to my hotel and photographed it and drove it all the way back and so um you know all of these people have just been unbelievably gracious and kind in, and, and obviously very trusting uh, in, in letting me photograph a lot of this stuff. Another guy by the name Hap Plain, who you may be familiar with, he's another big prototype collector in um, Redwood City, California. Um, he's, you know, given me access to a bunch of his stuff. So, you know, once again, I just have to thank all these people for helping me put together what I think is definitely one of the most fascinating and interesting chapters of the book, which is all of these prototypes. Yeah, we had a couple other items that we wanted to highlight. Again, you had said that when you were going through this whole process, you were discovering these things that you didn't even know necessarily existed in the Apple product line. And I feel like I have a fairly good grasp of the overall picture of the Apple product line, but there were some things that were surprises to me. The one that stood out the most because of just the way that it jumps off the page is this special edition power book that was apparently done for the LPGA, the golf organization. Do you know uh, any more about the story of that and how you were able to find it? Um, so first of all, I, I love hearing that like, people like you guys who are, you know, Mac experts, when people say, you know, I, I thought I knew everything that Apple made, but I had no idea that they made this or that. That still it brings me a lot of personal joy, and I've actually experienced that with people that have worked at Apple for 25 years that have received a copy of the book. They said, "Oh man, I didn't even know we made all of this stuff." So that's that's been uh, very, that whole thing has been really really uh, rewarding. Um, about that, so actually, I don't know that much about the L, the L, the uh, uh, GPA version of the um, of the Power Book, the one I think the one forty five or the one forty. Come over the uh, model, but um, that particular one belonged to uh, Jim Abels. There are a handful of them out there in the wild. Um, I, I have to tell you, I don't remember the, the full story of how they came to be, but they were part of that era where Apple was just spitting out multiple versions of many, many different variations of, of all of their products. And um, But I'm not familiar with any other product where they did this, this kind of multicolored special version. I mean, it's, it's so unique the way all the different components are just all these bright different colors and it's really, really quite, quite amazing. And it was a lot of fun to photograph as well. Yeah. The only thing that I can think of that had sort of a special color edition was there was the charity auction of the red Mac pro, the new trash can Mac pro a couple years ago, but that was 
clearly a one-off and and went for a lot, a lot of money. Yeah, I um, I had a dream that I could find out who won that, and they would allow me to 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 photograph it and the gold ear, ear, um, earbuds as well. But I think that's that's ever going to happen. Um, actually, I'm also just flicking through. So the the Pippin, which you know technically wasn't my you know was was re, 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 rebranded, but that that's pretty colourful as well. It's got the yellow, green, blue, and red. Uh, buttons on the front and it's got the colorful logo on the front as well but otherwise everything was i guess fairly other than the apple logo itself all the other products were kind of pretty bland when it came to to uh coloring up until you got to the the imac especially the the colorful imacs and then the uh, the patterned imacs which still just uh i i i don't know i think that personally for me that's one of the uh the worst design <laughs> hardware decisions that Apple has made, especially that, that flower power one really, uh, I'm not a fan, but you know, everyone, every one of us has our, uh, favorites and least favorites. Do you have a personal favorite, uh, piece of Apple hardware from basically any era? And did you wind up treating that at all differently for the book or did it just, you know, go through the same steps as everybody else? I get that question a lot, and I think my answer changes all the time. Uh, so I, I was, for a long time, I was obsessed with getting a Color Classic 2, which is um, a very rare version of the, of the Mac. Um, it was one of the, um, um, you know, like the, the Macintosh Plus and the uh, Mac SE. It was that kind of box, that original, I forgot what, what the term is for that particular style. Um, but it was uh, it was obviously it was, it was a um, it was only released in Japan, and it was very rare. And I actually managed to find one on eBay in the original box. So I got the original box um, of this Color Classic Two, and I paid two thousand dollars for it, and I sold it for two thousand dollars. So I didn't really lose anything on that. But that was that was a lot of fun, just because it took me a long time to actually find. Um, I guess my my favorite product. Uh, I, I mean, that's actually uh, that's really tough to to um, answer. I guess I really enjoyed photographing um, the Apple One. Uh, just you know, the fact that I managed to get access to one as a collector here in Atlanta, Lonnie Mims, who's a huge vintage computer collector, he has a mind blowing collection of vintage computers and he's very open about sharing the collection with the world he's actually set up a museum here in atlanta i mean he has everything he's got an altos he's got like five cray machines in his warehouse he has two warehouses he's got you know know, not just apple but he's got you know every other brand you can possibly imagine and he's got two apple ones and he very graciously allowed me to photograph one of them and that was just I remember just feeling like, wow, this is the you know the, the super rare, unbelievably expensive machine that you keep hearing about, and here it is, and I'm holding it and I'm turning around, flicking it on its on its back, and taking all these photos. So so that was quite a lot of fun, to do. But I you know I I mean I love my iPhone, I love my iPod sixth gen Nano that I still use when I run. I still think it's the best iPod I've ever made. Ah, um, and um. I mean, all, all the others kind of fade into uh, the same category of just you know having your own distinct, interesting features. But I guess those those are the those are the ones that kind of stand out, at least today. 
Yeah, of course it'll change in the future as more and more things happen. Like you mentioned the the what is as we record this the new MacBook, the uh the 12 inch MacBook with the new keyboard edge to edge and the first uh one that's thinner than the air and also has a retina display. I think you know, that's definitely a landmark model. I think we can all see that today and it'll be interesting to see how we feel about it 5 or 10 years from now, especially as we see how it informs the other designs that uh, come out after it. I think there are sort of two ways that for me and for people that I know that this question goes, you either have something that you see was, uh, was a really key piece of design that then went forward and informed a lot of other products, or you have something that you like because it, it spoke to you at the time and then there was nothing else like it. So I know, um, I've helped on a couple occasions. My parents go through and do, you know, an old technology purge, keep things, some things for the sake of nostalgia, make sure that you get actually all the data off of it that you want. And then, you know, some things they take up space and they, they need to move on. Um, but one of the pieces of Apple hardware that I think is always going to have a place in my parents' house is the iMac with the swivel arm flat panel display, the sometimes affectionately G4. called yeah called the the eye lamp <laughs> um and my dad just loves that design and you can put it in your in your house you know it, it can be off and it can still be a piece of art and so all of these different kinds of designs speak to us in different ways yeah i mean how many other computers could you say could even be remotely considered a piece of art right i mean even a you know the lamp the eye lamp is a great example the g4 cube but i i mean i think you know, the, the example used of the MacBook is really interesting. You know, go back and look at the Macintosh Portable when it came out, right? I mean, so it's, what, it was a seventeen or $14,000 or $11,000 computer. It weighed 16, 17 pounds. And at the time, I mean, wow, it was a portable Mac. And, you know, this is what makes all of this so much fun. What will the Mac, the, you know, the 2015 MacBook, how will it be considered in 10, 20 years? Because, I mean, damn, that thing is unbelievable. I mean, yes, I mean, yes, it's, yes, it's underpowered and, yes, it's got the single port and all those things. But just stand back and look at that thing. It is, I mean, it's unbelievable that they can pack, you know, full-blown Yosemite operating system with Wi-Fi and Retina and um, it, into this, you know, I mean, it, it's it's nothing. It, it weighs almost nothing, and and the side profile, it really is unbelievably thin. And you know, this is why Apple is just for me still so much fun to follow, and just it's just an incredible time to be a part of. Because just like you said, how is that? machine going to be looked at in 10 20 30 years right is it going to be considered clunky <laughs> and it so depends on what comes in between because i've been thinking about um i realized this i knew in my mind what the original mac portable looked like and i know what more recent macbooks have looked like and i think it was when we were watching revenge of the nerds and we saw the power book sitting on john scully's desk and it didn't look right and I realized, and then flipping through your book as well, Jonathan, that from the Mac Portable, they, they didn't hinge all the way at the back. Right. 
And then that continued all into the power book line, the power book that Scully had did not hinge all the way at the back edge. And of course, every MacBook today and power books before that hinged at the far back edge because it was optimal use of space, gave you the most screen real estate, that sort of thing. But I couldn't possibly tell you without looking which was the first power book that hinged all the way at the back edge. And did that seem like a huge feature at the time? Did that seem amazing? Did people say, in the future, they will realize that they finally made it full use of all the space here because that's what the current MacBook is doing. It's making optimal use of all the space. And will it just be you know one more thing in, in this you know, forward march of progress or will it still seem like a huge, huge deal to us then? It's, it's always very interesting to think about these things. What, what is t- history today? Uh, Jonathan, you mentioned uh, little things like having to take a day off from work to uh, make sure you received a FedEx delivery or taking trips to meet people who had prototypes. Is there any other uh, special sacrifice you've made? It's clearly a labor of love. Uh, is there anything else, like another story where you had to make special considerations that comes to mind? Well, you know, I, obviously my, my family is very um, understanding and considerate, especially my wife. I mean, I, you know, many, many nights I would you know, put the kids to bed and then go downstairs and work on my project, whether it was touching up the photos, taking photos. So there were many nights where, you know, I probably would have loved to have sat in bed and watched you know, the daily show with my wife, which we love to do now, but I, I didn't. I spent many, many nights. And then, of course, as the book started to get close to getting released, there were many weekends where I was, you know, working long, long hours trying to make sure that everything was done. So, um, you know, a lot of family time sacrifice, but I, um, I, I think it was ultimately worth it. And one of the fun things about this project has been that my kids – um, so I now have a nine and eleven year old. They really have been around for the whole production and of the book, all the way to when the books arrived. All fifty five thousand pounds of them on a tractor trailer um, truck at my storage unit, and they saw us schlepping, you know, thousands and thousands of books off the truck. I mean, they've just been part of this whole fun project, uh, which I think has been a great education for them to see how you know you can go from a crazy idea to an actual physical. Thing in your hand for them to have some kind of appreciation of what that process is about. So um, I wouldn't really call that a, that a sacrifice, but I think you know there was obviously a lot of time that I didn't get to spend with them. But um, you know, I, I think it's definitely been been worth it. One last thing that we wanted to ask you about: you know, the iconic book has clearly become a real side business for you as well, um, but. You mentioned earlier that you work for SAP, a large enterprise company, and you said that a lot of your daily work uh, for a long time was exclusively Windows, and um, still to this day sounds like you do uh, quite a bit of work on Windows. But how does the Mac fit into your other work today? And you know, you've carved out a niche in the Apple community as. Uh, you know, with through this photography project, both online and in the book form. And do you see the work that you do in the office, you know, making enterprise applications using Apple technology in that way? Does that still sort of fit into the notion of the Apple community? I think that it does. So first of all, um, you know, I, I feel like the book is a great asset to the Apple community, but I, I still realize that you know, my, my knowledge of Apple products is very broad but very thin. Um, 
there are still a lot of people out there, and I think you guys probably fit in this category, that have a very broad knowledge of Apple, but a very detailed knowledge of each of the individual products because I didn't really get to spend a lot of time with each one kind of delving into its minutia. So, you know, it's it's fun to be able to provide this visual resource to the community, but it's definitely complemented by, you know, guys like you who kind of have a lot of the more in-depth knowledge and guys like, you know, James and John from the Retro Maccast. I mean, those guys are just walking, walking uh, uh, Wikipedia entries for nearly all these products. Um, I, I, so we... <laughs> We build solutions for our customers at SAP and, you know, some companies decide to go with iOS, some companies decide to go with Android, some companies do BYOD. Um, I still think that everything is just better on an iPhone. I think I think it's they're easier to build for. You don't have the, you know, I, mean, I don't want to get into the whole iOS versus Android thing, but I just from from an enterprise perspective, I think there's, there's more predictability around what you're getting on an iOS device than what you have to deal with on Android. And the quality of the apps that we produce and the speed at which they run is just always better on an iOS device. So I guess the answer to your question, I mean, I, you know, we, we don't really favor one or the other because our customers use all the platforms, including Windows, and I've dabbled with Windows Phone as well, and actually think it's a pretty nice-looking OS. But um, I just I just feel like things run better on the iPhone, and all of the tools and frameworks that surround that overall experience, because the apps that we create are just one sliver of the user experience that someone's going to have on their phone, which is also now complemented by the watch. Uh, I just I feel like everything just runs better on on the Apple platform. So I'm not sure if that really answers the question, but I, you know, I feel like, you know, we do contribute to um, how Apple's perceived, certainly in the in the enterprise space, by showing people, oh, okay, you can have, you know, consumer grade uh, user experiences on enterprise. Well, Jonathan, we wanted to thank you again for sharing these wonderful stories with us of how this project began and progressed, and. Uh, for being so kind to send us copies of the book so that we could really look through and uh, get into it with you. Yes, thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. As always, uh, we'll have links to some of the information of some of the products that we discussed uh, on the show in our show notes, which you can find at simplebeep.com slash episodes. Um, but we should also definitely point you to Jonathan's website, which is shrineofapple.com for the online version, and then iconicbook.com for the print book, which I have to say, you know, to really get in there and see a lot of these rich details, this is still the best way of doing it. You know, someday, we talked 5, 10, 20 years in the future, someday you'll just stare at your retina display and it'll look just as gorgeous as some of these photos in, in on glossy print, but uh, for now, I think it's one of the best ways to to see these things. I get a lot of emails from people who say, when are you coming out with an ebook? And I just, I, I, I think it, it's just a better experience to sit there and flick through the pages and talk about it with friends and, and family, and, which a lot of people do. Um, so I, I don't envisage doing an ebook version anytime in the future, but you know, who knows, maybe one day. Yeah, I was going to say the book itself is very well designed and, and, a piece of art in itself from the packaging. And if you go on the website, you can see the different editions of the book. Uh, it's all 
so beautiful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, a shout out to my uh, layout designer, Lisa Clark, who's a designer in Massachusetts, who actually helped me um, lay out the photos. Once again, had a lot of material to work with, so she worked with Forrest to help me kind of siphon down the right photos and make sure that they were all being presented in the right order. So if anyone out there wants to do a coffee table book on anything, you definitely want to contact Lisa. She's pretty unbelievable to work with. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can do that on our website, or of course you can find us on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. We're also individually on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. I'm Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. And Jonathan, where can people find you? Uh, so my Twitter handle is Shrine of Apple, and I've got a Facebook page as well, which is facebook.com slash Shrine of Apple. But I um, still uh, tweet out some uh, individual photos of products, product shots that didn't make the book every now and then. People seem to enjoy that. So if you like the photos and you like to see new ones all the time, just follow me on Twitter. Absolutely. Thanks again, Jonathan, for your time. Thank you. And we'll see you all next time.